Many of you have the notebook that had six sessions in it, but today's the seventh week, so that's why I say no notebook. If you have your notes there, you can scribble what I have to say if you care to. Otherwise, just listen up, and I'll tell you what this seventh extra session will be about in just a bit. But before we get into that, I want to uh, just uh, make a few announcements. Uh, One, uh, please uh, pray for me. I'll be traveling this afternoon just for two days, going to Rockford, Illinois. I go every year uh, to a one-day conference uh, in May uh, called the Conference on the Church for the Glory of God, and uh, it's held at First Baptist of Rockford, Illinois. So I'll be going there, uh, traveling with some uh, pastor friends. So just uh, pray for traveling, and we'll be back on Tuesday afternoon. Lord willing. Uh, Our daughter is graduating from high school this Friday, so if you think of praying for Lainey, do that. And then the following day, Saturday, this coming Saturday, we're having an open house for her here. And uh, then in June, uh, two of our other graduates are having their open houses here as well. So Rachel Muscat will have hers here on June 22nd. June 29th will be Nolan Gagne. This Saturday is is Lainey's open house uh, here. And uh, you're all invited. Most of you have seen the inserts we've had in the program over the last few weeks. Uh, They say uh, to RSVP. Some of you have done that, and that was just to help us try to get an idea of food. But uh, most of the time, you don't RSVP for open houses. In retrospect, we probably wouldn't have put that on there. And uh, so come whether you remember to RSVP or not. If you wake up on Saturday and you go, oh, I forgot to RSVP, then you're still welcome to come. And we'll give you whatever's left over in terms of the food. But that's uh, going to be here. And, you know, you'd think I would know the time. There's an insert in the program. Does anybody see the time? Is it 1 to 5? 1 to 4. Okay, 1 to 4. So that's 1 to 4 this, uh, this coming uh, Saturday. It also says on there, Inner City Baptist High School. That's where she's graduating from. That's not where the open house is. The open house is here. Someone pointed that out to me that people might get confused. So don't be confused. Here Saturday from, from 1 to 4. Next Sunday begins, during this hour, two classes we've been telling you all about for a good while, and that is our newcomers orientation and our new members class. We offer those periodically throughout the year, and here's what they are. They are four-week classes, two different classes, one that I lead, one that Pastor Matt leads. I know it gets confusing about which is which, but here's what they are. The newcomers orientation, the one I lead, is for, as the name suggests, those who are newcomers to our church. You've never taken our newcomers orientation, and we offer this as a means to give you more information about our church, to help you make a decision about whether or not this is the place that the Lord would have you to to serve Him and unite in membership. Now, there's no pressure to that. When we get to the end of the four weeks that we'll meet during this hour, beginning next week, we get to the end of that. We don't ask you to do anything. We just ask you to think about it, pray about it, ask any questions you have. And if you decide this is not the place for you, that's fine. If you decide you need to attend a good while longer to make that decision, that's fine. Whatever you you need to do, we just offer it as information. So next week during this hour, those of you who have never taken our newcomer's orientation, we encourage you to do that. We'll meet in one of the adult classrooms right across the hall, and I'll lead that, that class. Simultaneous with that, Pastor Matt will lead the new members class. And that's for folks who, as the name suggests, are members, but new. So since the last time we offered newcomers, some of you have joined, and we offer this to help you get more fully acclimated. So if you've never taken the new members class, we encourage you to take that. That will meet in one of the adult rooms across the hall as well. And for the rest of you that are taking neither of those, in this room, 
will meet as usual for Discovering God, but a couple of our guys will lead two of those four weeks. Brother Ron Biggs will lead one, Zach Hamilton will lead one, and then Pastor Matt will escape for two weeks out of his class to come in here and lead this uh, class for two weeks because he has uh, guest speakers that come in for the new members class, different leaders from various areas of our church. So that's what's going on next week. We'll have three adult classes going on, newcomers, new members, and then if you're not in either of those, you'll be in here and uh, led by some of our guys, okay? Uh, In fact, I think Zach is starting off next week and you're the following week, or is it the other way around? Do you remember? Okay, because you're out of town. You hope it's Zach. Yeah, Zach's next week, then Ron, then Pastor Matt for, for a couple of weeks. All right, and then I'll try to rush through these, uh, these announcements. Uh, Memorial Day picnic, we have that every year on Memorial Day, which is the 27th this year, one week from tomorrow. It'll be at Lake Erie Metro Park. We'll begin eating at noon. It costs $5 per vehicle to uh, get into the park, so make note of that. But please plan on attending. We always have a, a great time with that. And then longer range, we're planning some outreach as best we can through uh, our ministry center here and letting people know that we're here in this building now. Uh, The end of June, June 28th through the 30th, is the Trenton Summer Festival. We have applied for a booth there, an area there, but uh, we're trying to get approval for what we can distribute and give away there because they have restrictions on that. So we'll see if they allow us to to do what we want to do. If not, then we won't do it, but just have that in the back of your mind. Uh, June, uh, June 28th through 30th is a three-day festival there. And we want to take advantage of letting people know that we're here. But uh, in August, we are going to have for the first time, because it's the first time we've had a facility where we could have a vacation Bible school. And we've established the week for that. It will be the week of August the 12th. August the 12th will be our vacation Bible school. And the weekend prior to that is when we're going to have our not-so-grand opening. We, uh, that's what we're going to call it, because it's not really our grand opening. Our grand opening will be after we expand this room, uh, but we don't want to wait until that's completed to invite people and let them know what we're about. So uh, we're going to have our not-so-grand opening that weekend and then use that as an opportunity to invite uh, families to bring their kids to the Vacation Bible School that will start on the following, following Monday. So just make note of that. Of course, you'll be hearing a lot about that in the weeks in the run-up to it, okay? If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4, we're completing a series that you see on the screen, Stolen Identity, for which you've had a, a packet of notes. If you've been with us that we started, you see April 7th on the screen as well. That was six weeks' worth of notes, and here we are in a seventh week. Why? Here's why. Uh, We thought that uh, during this hour, back months ago when we planned the calendar, we thought that right now we would be having a baptism. So we would not be having our educational classes at all during this hour today. So we thought we would end Stolen Identity last week. Pastor Matt has been teaching for those six weeks the young adult class in in the resource center. He would complete his class. And then on this date, May 19, we would have Lord's Table, as we did in the first hour. And then normally, we have then baptism. We have both the ordinances on the same day. As we tried to work out the logistics for the baptism, not having a baptistry in this building yet, uh, we simply couldn't get it, couldn't get it done. We tried to rent uh, Woodhaven High School uh, to use their pool, as we've done in the past. 
churches that might have been available for us in the afternoon uh, were not large enough for, for our group. So we just hit one uh, roadblock after another. So we just had to give it up, and we will have our first baptism when we get our own tank, okay? And we're hoping to have that later this year. So when that fell through, we wound up with this extra week. So I say to Pastor Matt, well, then we can just start newcomers and new members a week early. So I say this to him like a month ago. And he's been teaching this class to the young adults, and he says, no, we can't, because I'm already behind on my material. So he needs, he needs another week to finish his material. So because Matt needs another week, you've got to listen to me yap some more about stolen identity, all right? So I've got this extra week that I sort of have to tack on to the end of my material. So the best laid plans of people like me are ruined by people like Matt, okay? <laughs> So that's the reason that we're here for a seventh, a seventh week. So what uh, are we going to finish off with? Well, we've been looking in stolen identity, if you've been with us, at the fact that the more secure we are in our identity in Christ, the less, then, we need the approval of other people. And then that affects the way we go about our, our lives, our work, our attitude in the work that, that we do and the activities we engage in. The more secure I am in my identity means I don't need security from, from others. Which means, as we've seen, that I don't have to play the pretend and perform game. Many people pretend that they are better than they are. Because their security, their well-being is tied to the opinion of other people. And so, therefore, they pretend they're not as bad as they are. They have to make excuses for what they do, even cover up what they do and what they perhaps struggle with. But if you're secure in your identity in Christ, you don't have to do that. You can be who you are. You don't have to pretend. You also don't have to perform. You don't, you're not dependent upon the approval of others if you perform, if you do well, if you have certain accomplishments, if people recognize you for certain things. And so you can get out of the pretend and perform game. Now I asked you to turn to 1 Corinthians 4 because we saw a couple of weeks ago an example of someone in the Apostle Paul who was absolutely secure in his identity. He knew who he was. And because he knew who he was, he didn't have to have inordinate regard for what others thought about him. So we saw a few weeks ago that Paul said of himself, I am the worst of sinners. And yet at the same time, he's able to give to the Philippians, in the book of Philippians, his resume of all of his accomplishments. He knows who he is. He knows what he's able to do and what he's able to perform. He knows how bad he is. And yet his identity is not tied to either of those. His identity is connected to Christ. And that's why then he can say in the midst of an argument amongst the worldly thinking Corinthians. And in chapter 3 he says that. You guys think in a worldly fashion, according to the pattern of the world. And as a result of that you have these divisions among you, divisions based upon personalities. This is my guy, that's your guy. I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, some said I'm of Christ. That's all because you're thinking in a worldly fashion. And I, Paul don't get caught up in that because I'm secure in who I am. 
And when he comes then to chapter 4, again, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, verse 3, he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. So there's your evaluation of me, but it really has very little impact. Your evaluation or the evaluation of the authorities. Verse 4, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. You know, I understand in humility that I don't even see myself absolutely clearly. I know I struggle with sin. I'm the worst of sinners, he calls himself, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. I know that God has seen fit in his providence to allow me to accomplish a number of things that I'm seeking to use for his glory, but I still don't see myself clearly, let alone having you do it or somebody else do it. Verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. Now, when he says in verse 4, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. I pointed out to you a few weeks ago that that word translated innocent is the same word that's translated in passages like Romans chapter 4, justified. So my conscience is clear, but that does not justify me. What I think about myself doesn't justify me before God. What you think about me, what the authorities think about me, what matters is what, what God thinks about me, right? And what does God think about me? Well, that's found in Christ. Because Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, my life is hid with God in Christ. I'm attached to Christ, and that's what matters. And God sees me through Christ, and that's what matters. Not how you, how the authorities, or even how I see myself. It is how God sees me. Now, here's a guy who's secure in his identity. Now, we saw that a few weeks ago. That being the case, how did that affect Paul going about ministry? And that's what I want to spend this additional week on. Here's a guy who clearly knew who he was, was secure in who he was because he was secure in his identity in Christ. How did that affect the way he went about life? How did that affect the way he went about ministry? Because you all have heard me say lots of times, belief determines behavior. Ideas have consequences. What you believe about yourself will give rise to how you go about life and ministry. What we as Christians believe about ourselves will have consequences in how we go about life and ministry. What we believe about ourselves as God's church will affect how we go about ministry. And you see this effect on the ministry and the life, life of Paul. With regard to, regard to ministry, if our identity is found in Christ and not in other people and not in what other people think about us, then some things would become clear, right? We would not be engaged in competition in ministry, which is exactly what the worldly thinking Corinthians were about. It was competition. Who was better? Whose guy is better? So we would not be engaged in ministry competition. You in your ministry, the word ministry in the New Testament means service. So when you read here ministry, here service. In your service for the Lord, you're not in competition with anybody. You're not in competition with anybody in the church. You say, well, that should go without saying. Right, I agree. <laughs> but it doesn't. It happens all the time. 
you would not, in terms of your service, ever ask, why them and not me? Because you're not in competition, right? And yet, it happens. You would not be someone that, that wonders and frets about why they took her idea instead of my idea. Just as an aside, this is the reason that we said when we decorate this building, as we renovate it, we're going to have somebody from Grand Rapids do the decorating at an undisclosed location. You know, no, we chuckle, right? But what, what's going to happen? The minute somebody makes a choice, somebody's going to say, Who's, whose idea was that? Well, number one, I ain't saying. And why do we ask? I mean, really? Okay, so you got X number of people, and X number of people have X number of ideas about stuff. So who really cares that much? You know, I, I don't want the place to look ugly. I think we succeeded. It may not look exactly the way you would have done it. That's okay. And, and by the way, I'm not saying this because there's been a, an, an issue with that. I'm simply saying it because I know that there are issues with that kind of stuff. And I absolutely said we want to hire, part of the reason we want to hire these architects out of Grand Rapids is because of one of their, their services is they have their own interior designer who will do the stuff out of Grand Rapids. And when anybody says, whose idea was that? I say, oh, it's these idiots out in Grand Rapids. So hate on them. But in ministry, we're not in competition. We wouldn't be asking why them, why their idea rather than my idea. But let's be honest, it happens, doesn't it? So in our service individually, how we see ourselves will affect how we go about our ministry. And then as churches, it will affect how we go about what we do. Are we secure in who we are? And I do a decent bit of reading and talking with people involved in leadership and ministry. Reading about, reading from, talking to. And I'm convinced that there are a lot of churches and a lot of church leaders who are not secure in who they are. And as a result, they're willing to try anything and everything to get the approval of the world. You wonder why churches do what they do. I'm here to tell you, this is one of the base reasons. Our churches and our leaders are not secure in who they are. And therefore, we've got to keep dancing. We've got to keep popping and dazzling in order to get the approval of the world. And I'm going to show you from 1 Corinthians that Paul didn't think that. Because he was secure in who he was, he did not then therefore feel like he needed the approval of the Corinthians, and he most certainly didn't need the approval of the world. But if we as churches are not as secure in who we are, we'll dance and we'll do anything to get the approval of the world. Do you all ever get the impression that some of our churches are just trying too hard to make an impression on the world. I mean, do you ever just get that uneasy feeling? Christians are just singing, do you guys like us? We hope you like us. You know, and we want to be 
a proper, accurate reflection of the character of God to the world. We must be that. But do not forget, friends, the world hated Jesus. Where did we ever get the idea that we're just going to come off cool enough that the world's going to like us? And I submit to you that at bottom, it's because we are not secure in who we are as people and as churches and, and ministries. So, you know, I recently saw in the blogosphere over the last month, yikes, this Bible college that's just imploding. Just imploding because they're just trying everything to try to get enrollment, to try to get students to come. So they started a rock band. And they had a little promotional video for the rock band. And I saw one comment that said, Don't you understand that you're not making Christianity better? You're making rock and roll worse. (laughs) Just trying too hard. And you see it all over the place. So we're willing to change to get the approval of the world. So let me tell you an anecdote with regard to that. This past Monday, I told you that I read and I try to interact with leaders about these kinds of issues to hopefully sharpen myself. That's my ultimate objective. And then if I have anything to offer to help them sharpen themselves, then I do that as well, iron sharpening iron. But this past Monday, I attended a pastor's seminar of the uh, uh, IFCA International. IFCA used to stand for Independent Fundamental Churches of America. They changed their name to just be IFCA International because fundamental has come to mean Islamic fundamentalist and all that. So they were kind of stuck with that, and so they just changed it to IFCA International. If anybody says, what's the IFCA stand for, say, never mind. But that's that's what it is. To give you a, some of you a frame of reference, this is the organization that Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, John MacArthur's church, is part of, the IFCA. And so they have local chapters. They have a local chapter here. And a fellow pastor whose church is part of that invited me to come to it, just as a, as a guest to just sit in and, and hear. So here's what happens. This meeting is taking place at a church in Ypsilanti, that is a sizable structure. I had been to this church 25 years ago when I was doing youth work at our parent church. There was a youth rally there. We took our teens there, and it was a happening place. It was the Forest Avenue Baptist Church at the time. Um, It had hundreds of people at the time, 25 years ago. So when we went in, we went into the basement, there was a gathering of about 12 to 15 pastors of this local chapter of the IFCA. Most of these pastors were older than me. Now, I'm 51, so most of them were older pastors. The host pastor was older than me, uh, had been there at the church for just eight years, and he gave a testimony during the meeting. He said, when I came, uh, we had 30 people. We then moved up to 50 people, and now we're at 20. So part of this meeting was to talk about, amongst pastors, things that you're doing in your church that are effectively reaching people in your community. 
And this brother was very honest about it. He said, let me start out by sharing what doesn't work. And then he talked about the three or four or eight things they've done, all of which that haven't worked. So this church is hanging on by its fingernails. So then we go around the room. And several of these older brothers said, yeah, we tried this and nothing's working and nothing's working and nothing's working. Well, I'm just there as a guest and I'm not planning on saying a word. And yet the host kept saying, well, what about some of you guys who haven't said anything? And I'm still resisting. I am not going to say anything. And I'm waiting for the brother who invited me to come to say something, but he's not saying anything either. So the two of us haven't said anything. Most of the other guys have, a few haven't. Finally, one of the pastors who had already spoken said to a guy that he had brought with him from his church, he said, Jerry, why don't you say some stuff? You have a lot of experience with this. And Jerry's probably about 70 years old. And he spoke up, and this is what Jerry said. He said, well, I've been hesitating to say anything because I don't know if you guys are going to want to hear what I have to say. Because to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not used to coming to meetings where everybody's whining about how bad it is. And Jerry's only two seats from me. I'm kind of looking over. Everybody's whining about how bad it is. Well, Jerry's got a point. Okay, so I'm listening. And then Jerry tells a story about how 25 years ago or a long time ago, he was on staff at a church, 1,200 people. He was their Christian education director. And some of the staff had decided they were going to leave and start a, quote, non-traditional church. And they approached him and said, would you be interested in starting a non-traditional church? And he agreed. They did. And Jerry says he's one of the founders of Kensington Community Church. Some of you familiar with that? That is a church that, as I speak right now, will have at least 10,000 people there. Right? At least. It's part of something called the Willow Creek Association. Willow Creek Community Church in uh, South Barrington, Illinois, outside of Chicago. Started in the late 1970s. They have multiple thousands of people at five services every Sunday. And they have spawned these kinds of churches around the country. Kensington is one of those. Northridge is another one, if you're familiar with that. And these churches grow to huge sizes. And so then Jerry starts saying, in effect, that's what we got to do. You know, we just got to break out of our shell. We got to stop doing the traditional stuff. Stop being tied to tradition. When we start, start doing that, we can do a non-traditional thing and look what happens. And so I'm thinking to myself, part of what Jerry's saying is true. And part of what Jerry's saying is not true. And it's the not true part that caused me to succumb to the temptation <laughs> to then speak up. And uh, I'm not going to go into what I had to say much, but other than to say... You know, I think Jerry's partly right. We do need to be willing to break outside of extra-biblical issues in order to think about the culture we live in and the time we live in and how we can remove unnecessary barriers to reaching people in our communities. Unnecessary barriers. But here's the thing. There are some necessary barriers. Right? I mean, are we Okay. Like, like, say, Christ, who is said to be a stumbling block. That's what the Bible says, right? The gospel, which is said to be an offense and foolishness. 
So there are some necessary barriers. Now, remove unnecessary barriers. I'm with you. And plenty of churches ain't willing to do that. And so we get what we plan for then. If we're not willing to remove unnecessary barriers. But we also have to remember that there are necessary barriers too. And I said, you know, like, for instance, the Bible teaches that there are some people who are in the family of God and some people who are not. And you need to be willing to have the guts to say that. And if your gathering on Sunday morning blends everybody together as if we are all in this, then you have missed some core teaching of Scripture. And so I gave this example. When, and I'll just use the name since Jerry used the name and you all are familiar, but when Kensington or any of the Willow Creek, Creekish, Creekettes does what they do on Sunday mornings. That is called a seeker service. You guys familiar with that? A seeker service. Now, what do you know about Scripture that might inform you about that? It might raise just a flag. Have you ever read a passage that says there is no one who what? But other than that, (laughs) I mean, there's a sense in which if you had a seeker service, nobody would show. Right? I'm just saying. But okay, let's get over that. What is meant by that is this is a time where we're going to address unbelievers. But here's the thing. The time they do that is during the worship service. Now let me ask you all a follow-up question. As I asked the brothers at the meeting, can unbelievers worship? Can unbelievers worship the true and living God? The answer to that is no. You can't worship the true and living God outside of the access given to us through Jesus. So let me get this straight. You've set a service and an entire structure and formed it and planned it for people who can't do it? Accommodating the tastes of the culture, read the world? And then call that success. So, I agree, Brother Jerry. But I disagree as well. And we got to be secure in who we are. So that we don't sing and dance to impress the world. And if we're not secure in who we are, it will affect us individually. And it will affect us as churches as well. Now, that's one side of it. We'll change anything. Y'all just tell us what you want, we'll do it. You, you say, come on, it's not that bad. Yes, it is, as a matter of fact. Willow Creek started by taking a marketing survey, asking people, what keeps you from coming to church? And they told them. We want shorter sermons. We want more hip music. We want more. They gave them the list. And Willow Creek says this. They say this in their literature. Bill Heibel says this in their literature. We did a marketing survey. They told us what we wanted, and we gave it to them. Well, uh, look, I have got a surefire way to fill this building up quadruple. You do that, here we go. But there are some necessary barriers. So there are people who are willing to change anything in order to get the approval of the world. But on the other side of it, there are people who are unwilling to change anything 
in order to be effective for Christ. That's a fact as well. Unwilling to remove even unnecessary barriers to allowing people to come in and hear the truth and to hear the gospel. And those brothers at that meeting were presiding over churches who fit in that category. I know personally some of you have been part of churches that have dwindled down and died in part because we were unwilling to remove even unnecessary barriers to be able to reach our communities. And I'm submitting to you that in both of those cases, they are contrary to what Paul would have done. Being afraid to change at all means that we fit into the category. You guys have heard this. The seven last words of a dying church are, we've never done it that way. Or, the dying church can't see the difference between tradition, which is, which is good, and traditionalism. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And people who can't see the difference are destined to dwindle and die. So you have both sides of that. And so how do you navigate that? How did Paul navigate that? How do you have, on the one hand, no compromise, and on the other hand, no cowardice? No cowardice, meaning I'm willing, I'm willing to change even if my ministry friends, unnecessary barriers, even if my ministry friends don't like it. But on the other hand, I am not willing to change to accommodate the world and thus, and thus compromise. How do, you, how do you balance those two things? Well, in order to engage in the no compromise side, everybody says that. Everybody says that. <laughs> all of the Willow Creek types, all of the Secret Service types, they all say, oh, we're not compromising the gospel. But all the while, we're giving the world what the world wants. So how do you, how do, you do that? Well, here's what they say you have to do. You have to adapt to culture. Now, we're just going to go through this. I want you all to think. You've got about ten more minutes to have your thinking cap on. We're going to see what Paul did in just a bit before we go. But I want you to think. We need to adapt to culture. Now, there's truth in that, isn't it? Ministry, May 19, 2013 in Trenton, Michigan, is different than in Tanzania because you're in different cultures. So there's a sense in which you have to adapt to culture. But let me ask you this. Are there worldly aspects of every culture? And so as you adapt to the culture, don't you have to weed out the worldliness first? And if you're not weeding out the worldliness and you're simply saying, let's adapt to the culture because this is what our culture does, guess what you are in danger of becoming? Not just culturally cool, but worldly. To the point that, as one author has said, the problem then is not the church in the world, the problem is the world in the church. And so in a kind of uncritical adopting of culture, Romans, hold your finger in 1 Corinthians, Romans chapter 12. Verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. 
And my, my concern, dear friends, is that we're so insecure in who we are, we're trying too hard, we're trying to make this impression on the world, we're becoming like the world. And Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, of your mind. So what is worldliness? What is the world? You guys have heard me define it this way. This is a working definition that I think is accurate. Worldliness is this, fallen values expressed in culture. Fallen values, sinful values expressed in culture. We cannot do an uncritical adopting of culture because there's worldliness there. And we've got to know what that worldliness looks like. It's sinful values that are expressed in the forms of the culture, including its movies and its music and its magazines and all of that. And if you just say, this is what the world likes, you adopt that, sure they'll come. But you have become like them in order to reach them. So what did Paul do with it? First Corinthians, guy was secure in who he was. Therefore, he didn't have to impress anybody. He didn't have to impress the world. First Corinthians 2. First Corinthians 2. Verse 1. When I came to you, brothers... This is Paul now. I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now, I don't have time to, to prove this to you, but I'd be happy to give you an article by Dwayne Litvin, who did his Ph.D. dissertation on this very subject. On Greek rhetoric that the Corinthians had adopted as the ideal way for somebody to come and present a message. And if Paul had done a marketing survey in Corinth and said, how do you want me to preach? They would have said with wise and persuasive words. That's what the cool guys do. Paul knew that. And he says, I didn't come to you. <laughs> Paul knew what the market was and didn't give the market what it wanted. And I chose to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified so that the power in the results might not be in how cool I am, this is my paraphrase obviously, but in how powerful God is. Not in how hip our presentation is and our church is, but in how powerful God is. Paul says, I know what you want. I know what you wanted and I purpose not to give it to you so that I would not compromise the centrality of God and His power to the results that are achieved. Now here's a guy who's absolutely secure in who he is. I mean, you've got <laughs> you to have some courage, man, to go and say, that's the way it is. And yet at the same time, here's Paul saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, take a look there. In verse 19, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. 
To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel, that I may, sh- may share in its blessings. Now, you read that, and you go, well, Paul's willing to do anything. Well, you've heard me joke about this before, but I went to seminary, and I learned this, that 1 Corinthians 2 comes before 1 Corinthians 9, okay? And Paul had already written, I'm not willing to do everything. He'd already told him that. And yet, at the same time, here's a guy who's willing to adapt to the audience that he is trying to reach when, in fact, it is not worldly and in no way compromising, then, the message or the centrality of God's glory in the message. So how do you balance that? I'm going to read for you a fairly lengthy excerpt from D.A. Carson. Some of you are familiar with him. This is a little book called The Cross and Christian Ministry, Leadership Lessons from 1 Corinthians. And here's how Carson summarizes what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 in light of what he's already said in the first eight chapters. Today that expression, all things to all men, is often used as a form of derision. He or she has no backbone, we say. He's two-faced. He's all things to all men. But Paul wears the label as a witness to his evangelistic commitment. Even so, he could not do this if he did not know who he was as a Christian. Paul could not say, I'm able to adapt appropriately if he was not secure in who he was. The person who lives by endless rules and who forms his or her self-identity by conforming to them simply cannot flex at all. By contrast, the person without roots, heritage, self-identity, and non-negotiable values is really not flexing, but simply being driven hither and yon by the vagaries of every whimsical opinion that passes by. That would be most of our churches. Such people may, quote, fit in, but they don't actually win people to conformity to Christ. They hold to nothing stable or solid enough to win others to it. Thus, the end of Paul's statement in verse 22 is critical. I've become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. He goes on. When in the last century, Hudson Taylor, founder of China Inland Mission, started to wear his hair long, braided like Chinese men of the time, put on their clothes and eat their food, many of his fellow missionaries derided him. But Hudson Taylor had thought through what was essential to the gospel and therefore non-negotiable, and what was a cultural form that was neither here nor there, and might in fact be an unnecessary barrier to the effective proclamation of the gospel. To be a world Christian, then, it is important to grow in your grasp of Scripture and in your exposure to other cultures so that you do not tie your cultural preferences to the gospel and invest the former with the authority of the latter. This is not to say that all cultural elements are morally neutral, far from it. Every culture has good and bad elements in it. Wicked people can manipulate the appeal to culture to persecute Christians. Yet in every culture, it's important for the evangelist, the church planter, and the witnessing Christian to flex as far as possible 
so that the gospel will not be made to appear unnecessarily alien at the merely cultural level. But it's also important to recognize evil elements in culture and to understand how biblical norms assess them. There will be times when it's necessary to confront culture. After all, simply to appeal to current cultural norms, all the while demanding more flexibility from the Christian, is simply a way of saying the gospel, now hear this, the gospel does not have the right to stand in judgment over culture. And that will not do. And so he is saying this, the reason Paul could balance that, as well as anybody you have ever seen, other than the Lord Jesus, is because he was secure in who he was. He didn't have to impress his religious colleagues, Apollos, Peter. He didn't have to impress the Corinthians. And he knew that God needed to get the glory for what happened, and so he was going to preach in a manner, in a way, that they didn't like, but nonetheless was necessary for God to get the glory. And yet at the same time, he knew when he could flex and when he could adopt cultural norms to be as effective as possible with the gospel with those he was trying to reach. Now I want to end by showing you this in the life of Jesus, and then we'll be done. Just looking at a couple of passages in our final moments together. Take a look at Luke chapter 5. In fact, we'll just look at one. Luke chapter 5. So here's the earthly ministry of Jesus. Obviously, Jesus is secure in who he was. And therefore, Jesus is able to act accordingly. Did I say Luke? What chapter did I say? Five. Thank you. That's right. Five. Luke chapter 5 and verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. You all know who that is. This is Matthew. Sitting at his tax booth. Follow me. Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. Now just stop there for a second. All right, I'm, I'm out ministering, and a tax collector gets saved. And the tax collector is so overjoyed, he wants to have a party in honor of Jesus. Well, and other tax collectors are going to be there. And they're going to be eating and doing what tax collectors do, which is not what cultured Christians do. And here's the Lord Jesus. And what's he going to do? So Jesus is secure in who he is. Jesus knows what his mission is about. And he knows that this man has come to himself. And that this man has been steeped in his thievery as a tax collector. <laughs> He's been steeped in his worldliness. It's going to take time for this man to mature in the Lord, right? This guy has just come to Christ. And he says, I'm so excited, I want to have a party, come over. Now what should Jesus have said? No. That's what some, people, some would say, right? You can't go there. Because they're going to not just be eating, they wash that stuff down with something. They're not just eating, they're going to be drinking too. And you're going to be there? What will people say? And what do you think Jesus' answer is? Who cares? What matters is what God thinks. And I'm secure in who I am and in what I'm doing. 
And so, the tax collectors and others were eating with but the Pharisees and the teachers of laws who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink? Note, eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answered, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And you see this kind of confrontation in the life and ministry of Jesus over and over again. Now, why was Jesus able to flex that way? Why was Paul able to flex that way? Because they're absolutely secure in who they are. They're not trying to impress the world. They're not, all, they're not trying to impress other religious leaders. The verdict that matters is the verdict of God. And so they can preach the gospel unadulterated in all of its offense, in all of its foolishness from a worldly perspective. But they can also remove every unnecessary barrier in order to have an audience with as many as possible. And I want you all to know, and I'm going to shut up, that by God's grace, that's the church that you've come to. That's what we want to be. We want to be a church that understands who we are, that understands what the truth is, that proclaims the truth unapologetically, gives the gospel in all its offense and foolishness to the world, and yet at the same time removes every unnecessary barrier we can to have an audience for that glorious gospel. We can only do that if we're secure in who we are. We're not trying to impress the world. We're not trying to impress other religious leaders. We're trying to please God. You want to be part of that? We want you to go along with us. We'll tell you some more about that in our Newcomers Orientation, if you've never had it. That'll all start next week. Newcomers Orientation, new members class, and then Brother Zach will be teaching in here. Let's pray and ask the Lord to go with us as we leave. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to serve you, having been called out of the world and to yourself, and now we've been given a new identity in Christ, a blessed identity as your ambassadors, as your children, as heirs and co-heirs with, with Christ. The list of titles and privileges that you have given to us goes on and on. <clears throat> and so you have told us very clearly and marvelously who we are, Help us, Lord God, to be secure in who we are in Christ as individual witnessing, evangelizing Christians and collectively as a church that's seeking to reach this community and beyond. Help us to be so secure that we are not concerned about impressing the world with worldliness. And yet at the same time, we know, because we know you, we know your standards, we're immersed in your word We've seen the example of the Lord Jesus and the great apostle. We know when we can flex and remove unnecessary barriers to a hearing of that gospel. Help us to do this, Lord Jesus, in a way that pleases you, that emulates you, and yes, Lord, is effective for you. But Lord, whatever the results, we understand and believe what the great apostle said. I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. Go with us this week, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.